This is your invitation to the intersection of versatility and design. The kind of experience you can only find in a Lexus SUV. A feeling this empowering is invite only. Fortunately, you're invited. Experience the versatility of the complete line of Lexus SUVs and some of the best offers of the year on select models at the Invitation to Lexus sales event, now through April 1st. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. Are you ready to take your screenwriting career to the next level? If you're a new or aspiring screenwriter who feels lost or stuck in your career, the Working Writer School is here to teach you what writing courses don't. Writer Nicole Bennett said, After taking this course, I have a clear framework for the mindset, productivity, networking, and financial management skills needed for longevity in this industry. Former student Dylan Evans said, There are a ton of writing classes out there, but this course helped me work through the stuff that I couldn't find anywhere else. I feel more prepared and more knowledgeable to take on the next phase of my writing career. And Jay Burlingham calls this course the map. This course has given me a map that I will return to again and again as I move forward in my career as a writer. Use code MMIH for 10% off from now until January 31st and go to theworkingwriter.com. That's theworking, W-E-R-K-I-N-G, writer.com to sign up today. You know, making movies is hard. Making movies is hard. Welcome. This is the podcast about the struggle of being an independent filmmaker. I'm Mark Bussell, the founding host of the podcast, and I'm a sci-fi horror filmmaker, and my first feature film, The Alternate, is out now on digital and DVD. Woo! I'm Liz Manichel. I'm a writer, director, producer who has made two features, Bread and Butter and Speed of Life, and I'm currently in pre-production on my third film, Best Friends Forever. I'm a distribution consultant who does sales, and I used to manage Sundance's creative distribution initiative. This week, we have writer-director Molly Offen on the show to talk about her feature film, The Last Exit. And we play another round of the game, and we answer a listener question. But first, Liz, how are you doing? I'm doing... I'm doing okay. <laughs> I'm doing right. <laughs> Our household... Well, just Colin has RSV, so we're just waiting for me and Sean to contract it. What is RSV, you say? Yet another fun fun childhood disease that we get to all experience in the daycare world of being a caretaker. Other than that, other than anticipating just like lots of uh, phlegm, I'm currently grappling with the experience of making a movie in public. So, you know, I'm running this Patreon and I keep saying, I'm making this movie in public. I'm making it in public. And it's really, it's fun, but it is like a lot of pressure. Like I recorded, Amy and I recorded our feedback session today where we went over the notes from the latest revision of our script and just knowing that those things that we say to each other are going to be memorialized and shared with strangers is just such a weird feeling. Like what if I say something completely, that gets completely taken out of context or what if, what if I do end up sharing the budget and we get in trouble because we're not paying for something that we should. Do you do you remember hearing about that? I went to school with Jack Conti, who created Patreon, and he had a band called Pomplemousse, which I think still actually mm. exists. Mm-hmm. And they, Jack went and broadcast publicly, I think it was like how much he pays people in association with the band and what a tour costs and things like that. He basically just went and did pay transparency. And he got a lot of trouble for doing that Mm. you know like a lot of argumentation one way or another you're not paying this person enough you are paying and i think amanda palmer did something very similar with her with her shows and i think there's a price that i'm anticipating paying for transparency and it hasn't happened yet but it's it's just hanging over my shoulder 
So that is what what I'm experiencing is the horrifying aspects of being radically transparent as a filmmaker. Yeah, it's so funny because I feel like every time I felt felt like I was going to get slammed for something like no one gives a shit. <laughs> so like, you know, maybe we're just not big enough people for people to get excited about what we're saying because we've talked about like day rates and oh this is you should pay this person this or that person that and and no one comes down no one said anything you know but we're not really controversial about it either so that's a good point like so far we've we've been pretty transparent so it's like this is just it's just a continuation of what you and i already do i do know you mean though because like even when you just are trying to make a movie and you're just trying to get it done and you're telling everyone that you're making a movie, there's like a certain amount of pressure that like, oh my God, you better make your fucking movie or you're just going to look like a dumbass. But like doing that on, on Patreon, it's, a, it's kind of a bigger level because not only are you telling people you're, you're making your movie, you're asking for this money, you know, and then you're also broadcasting your creative, creative process to the world. And the creative process is tricky and uh, everyone has op- opinions on what's right and what's wrong. And that, like you're basically opening the door for everyone to see how the sausage is made in, in a bigger way than you've ever done before. So, yeah, I can see why it would be a little scary for sure. Yeah. <laughs> I, I would. relate. <laughs> I mean, I've been toying with the idea of sharing drafts of the script. I've been telling people I'm going to share a draft of the script. And that's that seems to be the really scary thing because it's not the shooting draft. It's not a lock draft. It's. You know, all of us are so protective over a process and we share behind closed doors iterations of a script so that we get notes from our colleagues. But I'm just thinking, like, do I want to show something that isn't vetted or polished? But then wouldn't it be nice to show the progress of a script and where it goes and how it evolves? I think you just got to do it because that's yeah. kind of what you're about. And I think to some degree, and that's like, you know, what the show's about to a big degree. And I feel like it's just kind of in line to, to be open, you know, mm-hmm. and, and, and it just kind of goes to being a filmmaker in the, in the first place. Like you have to send your script to people. <laughs> like, yeah. like, you know, at some point you have to send your shit out for people to rate and review and tell you if it's bad or good. And that's what we deal with all the time as filmmakers. And it's just like, I feel like I like, I, I met, um, a manager, you know, at, at AFF and, um, he, you know, he, it's kind of funny. So he was a really great guy. I had a really great conversation with him. I ran into him again, like the second night, you know, we had a few words. We exchanged cards. I was like, ah, this guy's fancy pants. Like he doesn't want to like, you know, whatever, talk to me because I'm not a TV writer. I'm not trying to be a TV writer. Like he's like a TV lit agent, like or manager. It's like, nah, not interested. And then he emails me like saying, hey, great meeting you. Stay in touch. And then I was like, well, then. <laughs> You emailed my ass. You're getting my movie now, you know, like, and like, I was like kind of scared to send it to him because it's like, you know, yeah, it's like, oh, well, here's my little movie I made, like Mr. Fancy Manager Guy. But it's like, you have to do that. Like, that's like part of what you have to do as a filmmaker. You have to put your shit out there to be judged. And like, if I run into that guy at AFF in the year, I'm, he's going to have to say something about my movie. <laughs> so it's like, you know, whatever. But it's just part of the game that we have to play. And it's like, just doing it more is probably a good thing. Like, the more you put your shit out there, like, the the easier it's going to be and, like, the less you're going to stress over it. I guess it's funny. I kept thinking, like, well, I can't show something because the script's not done, right? So it's like, I can't show this because people are going to judge me by the quality of the script and it's not done. But then I forget it's like, 
most people are just still going to see the final product. It's just yeah. going to be a few people who actually take the time to read a, an earlier draft of the script. What am I worried right. about? I love how you're like, I love how you're like, the floodgates opened because he emailed you and just said like, hey, <laughs> you're like, I'm in. And I would do the same thing. I'd be like, oh, they reached out to me. I This is my opportunity. I totally get that. Yeah, I mean, and I wasn't like, here's my movie, watch it now. I, I oh. like asked him, like, you know, hey, like, I like, I basically was like, you know, set it up, like, you know, this is what I'm doing. I don't remember if I told you about my movie or not, but I've got this movie, yeah. like, I'm looking for advice. And he's like, yeah, I'm totally like, let's jump on a phone call and I'm happy to give you advice. Or if you want, I can send you send me your movie and then we can talk. And I was like, yeah, I would love it if you watched my movie. It was like kind of like the response from a manager that I would never have expected to got yeah, to get. That's really giving. Like a really warm, welcoming thing. But this guy is just a great guy. And he was really nice when I met him and super fun and very open, you know, in our, our conversations. So like, yeah, maybe I just met a really great agent or manager. I don't know. Maybe. But yeah, power of AFF. Everyone talks about like this, the AFF being this wonderful, magical place. That's what everybody, all the conversations I had at Austin Film Festival was about how magical the Austin Film Festival is. And it's like, yeah, well, kind of is. It was pretty great. Met a lot of great people. Yeah. Anyways, it's my turn to talk. Yeah. What are you doing? Talking more over your side. That's okay. I just brought up a really interesting topic. Try to top me. Try to think of a better topic. (laughs) Challenge given. Oh, well, I don't have anything better. Basically, everything is busy right now with me. Like, I, you know, got busy with my day job. I'm, you know, busy with life. And then I'm the, the, working on this movie that I'm the online editor for that we're, like, delivering the final by the end of the year. So, like, it's crunch time. And so, like, now I'm dealing with all these visual effects shots and multiple visual effects artists. And the director's really sweet and working with me. But it's just, like, and then we got a color team that I have to deliver to in a couple of weeks. So, it's just, like... Just like a lot going on with that project, and of course, the, <laughs> the, the the distributor was like, they gave us a deadline for the South by Southwest submission. It was like, yeah, Monday the twenty first. I was like, great, plenty of time. Then today they were like, oh, did you already submit to, to South by Southwest or yesterday? They're like, you should have submitted by now. We're like what? I thought you said the twenty first. Well, at least that's what I got from 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 the director. And so now it's like a scramble to get it out by Friday, you know. And it's like, oh boy, like why can't we just avoid these scrambles? Like why are we always scrambling for things, getting the wrong information and getting the wrong dates? Ah, but anticipates. No one anticipates, and no one like. T- sorry, this is a pet peeve, but like being a part of all these meetings, it's like no one actually thinks ahead. Everyone's. Just looking to their their hour, their next hour instead of the next week. What is that about? Why don't we do five year yeah. plans in independent film? Well, the, the director was like kind of on it because he he like he he called like and I wasn't a part of this email session. He just told me later that he like asked them was like, hey, I saw that the deadline is this day. Uh, do we have like a special deal or something? Is that why we can return or, or do, does it matter? And they're like, no, 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 don't worry about it. Like 21st, totally fine. Like we're all, it's all good. And then it's like, of course it's due on the deadline and the actual deadline. <laughs> it's like, okay, then, but you know, I feel bad for the director because he like saw it coming, asked, inquired, was told, don't worry about it. And then of course, you know, four days left is like telling, you know, being, you know, like we need it right now. Ah. So I stayed up really late last night working on it and I'm 
um, hopefully to finish the first pass today. And then like, cause I basically what I'm doing for people who don't know what an online editor is, I'm basically taking the visual effects shots that are all approved by the director and I'm putting them back into the edit right now to get them to be in this festival screener for South by Southwest. And then they also did a, a an initial sound mix and full sound design, the whole thing. And that's done. So I dropped that in too. And then I'm adding extra like company logos and things and, you know, just, just making it look pretty basically. And then at the same time, prepping it for the, the color person or so like, I, I can't do the full color prep at the same time, but I basically am starting the color prep stuff I have to do because I have to put markers in where all the visual effects that I don't have are because I don't have all of them. So I'm like marking those places. And then like they asked me to put the, the visual effects shots in, in a very special way. So it's like, it's just a lot. It's a lot going on. But yeah, so that's what I'm doing and not writing. I'm reading a script that I met from a writer I met at, you know, at AFF. Shout out to Rudy, who's a listener to the show now. Thank you for listening, Rudy. Rudy, great story about Rudy. So if, do you listen to script notes at all? Are you a script notes person? I only never, listen never? to Dead Eyes and Us. That's the only <laughs> Smartless. I love Smartless, too. <laughs> so Script Notes does this amazing thing called the three-page challenge, which is basically what we were, like, trying to do with, with Get Shorty, but it's just, like, sort of failed in a way that three-page challenge didn't, where they, like, take the first three pages of a script and they analyze it and they talk about, like, what works and what doesn't work, and they try to find three pages that are, like, good but not great so they're like can like talk about like what they would do differently and how they could solve problems so he went on stage live at at Austin Film Festival and had his shit critiqued in front of like hundreds of people during this live script notes challenge thing and you know it was like they kind of were hard on him harder than on the other people you know I just was coming out of uh, the Shane Black you know panel and I just saw him and I was like hey dude Great job, three-page challenge. That was amazing. And then he turns out to be from Marin, really close to me. And then we just struck up a I'm conversation. I'm from, wait, what's his name? Rudy O'Mara. That's a good and, name, uh, but I don't his, know you, Rudy. His uh, website's Rudy with an I, because it's Rudy, R-U-D-I. Mm-hmm. Anyways, we had a great conversation. He He's written a ton of scripts. Basically, during COVID, he's like an ad guy. Uh, or something like that kind of at, like I'm getting this wrong <laughs> Rudy's gonna be like you fucking moron did you read my email he's like does advertising and stuff and then he, but during COVID he wrote like 20 scripts maybe not 20 12 so like and, and he just puts them on his website so you can go to his website you can just read like 12 Rudy scripts whenever you want and so I'm reading one of them right now it's a it's a sci-fi comedy so I'm enjoying that but yeah not really not really making any progress casting for my movie is like still happening but like after AFM, it didn't really go very well, you know, as I think I talked about. And now it's just like we're just kind of, you know, waiting to hear back and like waiting to figure out what we're going to do. I think the writer thinks the project's over. I'm a little bit more optimistic. The EP is like right there. He's like, we're making this movie. This is happening. Like it's either going to happen at this level or this level, but it's happening. So he's still got the energy, which is great. But I don't know. We'll see. I was like so 100% certain this movie was going to get made like a month ago. And now like my confidence in it is like, maybe it'll happen, you know, but no, you got to have that. I think, (laughs) but I think with any movie, it's like that. Like, I think no matter what movie you're going to make, it's, it's always a, maybe it'll happen. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Are so hard. But your energy, right? Like that, that is, 
I'm sure you're not telling the writer that, oh. right? You know what I mean? So it's no. like, as long as it's like this false front is put up with everyone, then who cares? I mean, I, I, I still think we're doing going about it the right way and everything. It's just like, it's hard to, to do this thing, to like couple cast to yeah. a script and all that. And I, and nothing about this process has to do with the script. So I don't think that the project is dead. It's just trying to find the right cast for it, you know? So. Anyways, that's what's going on. Lots of stuff. Yeah, we've been talking for a long time. I know. We're going to have to cut everything else short, but we can do it. We'll be fine. Cut it all out. But uh, you know what you shouldn't cut out is going to our Patreon. Go to www.patreon.com slash podcast to check us out. Like We have a lot of things going on there on the Patreon page. Lots of fun things like our weekly meetings, bonus episodes coming soon, and the back catalog to all our episodes that are not on iTunes. And we have to give a big, big happy birthday to Ben Steyer, who is one of our brand new Patreon supporters. Happy birthday, Ben. Happy birthday, Ben. Ben wants to say thanks all, and he's just subbing my first narrative feature to festivals. I think subbing means submitting, which is like... So like a cool kid? Cool kid expression? Yeah, we don't know. I, I'm not a part of that cool kid I'm not in the club. Where yeah. we say subbing for submitting, but it's very cool. It's called Girl Without End. Check it out at girlwithoutend.com. And then he also wants to say, I'm just a happy fan that wanted to support the podcast. And I felt like I've gotten a lot of value for free for you guys for so, so long. That I need to start to support the podcast and that he's been listening since the Timothy days. Whoo, maybe around episode 40. Holy moly. That is way back. Just like right around the end of year one. Thanks for listening for so long, Ben. I really appreciate it. You've seen the growth of the show. You've seen it go to new heights to the Liz era. He also says, keep up the good work. Love the alternate. Can't wait to, can't find where to order the Blu-ray, but have the iTunes. Well, there is no Blu-ray, but if you go to Amazon and you type in uh, the alternate DVD Ulrich, It'll pop up, I promise you. And you can buy it there, and you can also rate it there. I've got two ratings. One from me, basically saying what all the special features are, because I did not put any of the special features on there. So I gave it five stars, and I was like, hey, check out all the special features that come in this DVD. And then one other person um, who actually met at another film festival at at, uh, Dances with Films, Benjamin Robards, as I want to say is his name. I'm probably getting it half right, but he left a wonderful review, so thank you for that. All right, also, don't forget to check out Jambox.io, which is a new royalty-free music and sound effects company with an emphasis on high-quality cinematic cues. Their composers have worked on soundtracks for Hollywood-level films, working with directors like Michael Bay and Martin Scorsese, and they even offer customized plans to fit your needs, which is pretty amazing. We also have a discount code there, 20% off for your subscription if you use the code MMIH. So check that out. And without any more delay, here is Liz's chat, because I was not there, with Molly Elfman. Okay, so we start off our podcast asking everyone to do the elevator pitch for their movie. Do you feel comfortable doing that? Yeah, although the elevator pitch, I think the elevator pitch was why I didn't sell this film for so long. But uh, the elevator pitch is basically, it's a story about two people on a road trip across the country who have decided to take part in a study of Dr. Stevenson's in which she has proved that she can see, track, and record ghosts on the other side. And it's a story about what life means to them when death has 
new meaning. Love it. Best elevator pitch we've heard. Now, here's where I got a little personal and you tell me you can't share this information. This one's not so bad. This is a softball. How many days did you shoot? You know, that's actually, I don't know. And the reason why I don't know is because our travel days counted as shoot days because of like work days. So we drove across the country. And so it depends on if you're counting the amount. And while we were driving, we were rolling the camera. And sometimes I would sneak Katie into the driver's seat and I could get some of her perspective. So if you count those days, I believe we ended on 22 and a half. If you don't, I think it's more like 17. So it's somewhere in the middle of there. Basically, it was like a 17 day shoot with a couple of cheeky extra like scenes stolen driving. Meanwhile, like jumping out of the car and being like, this is really pretty shoot the sky. (laughs) Is that a day of shooting? Not sure. Why not? It's art. What can you speak up with regard to the budget? I'm trying to think about what we officially are saying about the budget. I mean, it was a small budget film. It was sub 1 million. I mean, look, for a first time feature, I was very grateful for that size budget. I know a lot of people who have made their first features for a lot less. And honestly, either doing the sub 1 million or I need to be in the three to five. the, The land in the middle is actually very, very hard, especially because of the union tiers and everything else that goes into that. So for me, when, once I hear sub 1 million, I'm like, okay, 20 person crew. Okay. We're not doing that many days. Okay. I'm going to be handling delivery and post. Like you just kind of get your head wrapped around it. And I find that to be actually much easier. It's just an entirely kind of different way of shooting than when you're shooting a bigger film. So yeah. Both Alric and I, Alric is the founding host of the show. We're micro budget feature filmmakers. I have two under my belt. He's got one. And the reason we ask that question is not to make anyone uncomfortable, which clearly you're not uncomfortable, but it's because a lot of our audience has no concept of what it takes to make a feature film. They just don't know what the budget is. Can you, I mean... Are you willing to give a range that is has a, a low end as well? Is it over 500000 Are you happy? Yes. Okay. Yeah, somewhere in there. Cool. And honestly, I actually don't know because the other hard part is because we shot this in the height of COVID, we shot this before there was any vaccines or anything like that, just to know. So take a budget range like that and then take about a sixth of your budget and put it towards COVID expenses, Yeah, which is what it took yeah. at that time. And it was so devastating. So what we actually got to spend on the film minus COVID costs is getting lower. I, I've been a producer for a long time and I've produced a lot of indies. And so it is also understanding what it takes to make that size film and leaning into once again that style which is why we went on the road oddly going on the road was easier than trying to build a set than trying to buy out locations than trying to do anything like that it actually nature was easier and worked with us a lot more I mean, I'm in Los Angeles and I, I think you may be too. I, I think that makes a lot of sense for those trying to make movies in Los Angeles. Absolutely. I read a little bit about how you've been working on the script for a long time and how you've been revisiting it back and forth. But how did you initially come up with the idea? You know, it, it wasn't so much that I came up with an idea. I think it was much more I needed to work through some shit. And so it always started with the characters. And it actually started with me writing. It sounds kind of like cheesy now, but like writing poetry for both of these characters and their perspectives. And I I used to be an actor, not a very good one. But one of the things that I did is I actually did actor breakdowns for both of these characters. And so by the time that I kind of was created the premise and then could put them on the road together, I knew them so well. I knew their backstories. I knew why they were there. And so they really kind of, a lot of times when I would get into a scene, they would be speaking so fast in my head. I just had to catch up with them. And it was really about, I, I enjoyed listening to them almost at a certain point mm. and playing with those voices. I like that. Okay. So I love that it's not just an idea, right? It kind of took over you. Yeah. 
But if you could quantify how long it took to make the film from just like that spark of inspiration until now, is is there a duration? Well, the odd thing is, is the actual making of the film. So there was probably about eight years of me putting the script together, playing with this. I had attempted to work with some co-writers and we just had very different ideas. I think this film could go, I think everybody wanted to make it kind of a little bit more of an action film or a little bit more of a horror film or a little bit more of a strategically placed film where things moved along in a more traditional movie stereotype kind of way. And this was never that for me. It was an emotional journey between the characters and that always had to take center stage. And I think that was very hard for people. So I, you know, I had gone to other directors because I didn't think I should be the director on this. And it took me a long time to build up the confidence. And I directed for shorts and I love short films. I think short films are a great way to kind of strengthen those muscles before you step into a feature because you really learn a lot about yourself just by doing. And so it was about seven, eight years in Rose McIver. I was producing a short for her. She sat me down and she's like, you know, what is your dream? Like I helped her do something that was a dream for her and I said, look, there's this one that I've been like writing in the background and I, ne- I never even talked about it. Like that's how it was like my little secret. Right. Yeah. And then she goes, I'm going to a horror convention next week in Hawaii for iZombie. Come with me. You can lock yourself in a hotel room or she'll lock me in a hotel room either way. <laughs> This is your invitation to the intersection of versatility and design. The kind of experience you can only find in a Lexus SUV. A feeling this empowering is invite only. Fortunately, you're invited. Experience the versatility of the complete line of Lexus SUVs and some of the best offers of the year on select models at the Invitation to Lexus sales event, now through April 1st. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer all day long and just finish your script, like take a week off work. And that was something I had never given myself permission to do was to say, I am a writer. I am writing the script. I always was very shy about saying that. It was always just something I was dabbling in, right? And she said, no, do it. And so I finally did. And then that was enough to take it to producers and and start having conversations past that. And then because I am a producer, I also took that and I came up with a budget I came up with how to shoot this. I came up with casting ideas. Like, so by the time I showed up to Derek Bechet and Arne Hakopian, I had a plan. We had to really completely change it because COVID hit and everything. But I also showed up kind of with how I wanted to accomplish it, which I think was very helpful to them because then there was a little bit of a plan of action. So if you just say, I want to drive across the country and make a film. If you say, I want to take five vans, I want to fill them with these people. I know the crew that I want to bring. This is how I'm going to consolidate my crew. I, I don't need a script supervisor. I don't need costumes on the road. I don't need all of these roles on the road. And I know myself well enough that I can get away with this. So it was a little bit different than them also having to ask me to cut things or something like that. I had kind of already preemptively done all of that, which definitely kind of helped the whole get moving it along. And then I just, I was so lucky to find Lindsay and Joel of Helm Street, who I pitched them all the other things that I had. And then they read this and they were like that one. And I think the hard part about this script is that you really have to trust that I'm going to be able to accomplish those emotional scenes. And because it, it lives and dies on the performance and the emotional and you caring about these characters. And so it's not a, a guarantee when you read that script. And I think for a lot of people, the more traditional investors, when they read that, were a little bit nervous for a first time feature director. And as somebody's produced, I get that and I understand, but it was them kind of trusting and believing in me that allowed that to happen. Well, so that brings me to a few. I mean, I prepared a lot of questions about casting because it was going to be right a dual un- interview with Rahul. Mm-hmm. But 
by the way, this is a, a an embarrassing admit, not embarrassing, an admission, but he's my favorite actor is Rahul Kohli. <laughs> I had a lot of questions for you because I noticed the Flanagan connection with Katie Parker. I didn't know if he brought her on. I didn't know if Rose brought Rahul on. I'm just curious. And what you just said is sparking a lot of questions in me too. Like if this whole, if the success of this film is based on performances, you must have put a lot of pressure on that decision. So can you talk a little bit about casting with that in mind? Absolutely. I mean, if you don't care about Rose and Teddy, the film doesn't work. If Rose isn't strong enough to push against Teddy and and Teddy isn't strong enough to push against Rose and both of those actors aren't going to show up, it's not going to work. It is a two-hander. It takes both of them. And it always was. And it was always meant to be that. So I, I wasn't writing with them in mind. And actually, there was other actresses throughout the years that I had thought of. What was funny is that I've known Katie for 10 years. She did a reading for a project that still hasn't gone yet. As many of them, you know, like to just sit on the sidelines, but she was really great in that reading. But then it was about, it was on that Rose McIver short, Nice Ride. Katie was one of the leads in it. And I saw how much she had grown in those 10 years. Like she's really gotten good in the depths that she went to and the way that she took direction. I was so impressed. And Katie is also one of my best friends, I should say, who I've been very supportive of and she has been supportive of me. So I knew that she would go there. I knew that it was going to be hard for her. I don't think that she actually is Rose. I wasn't casting somebody who I saw Rose naturally in, but I was casting somebody who I knew could accept those challenges and really transform herself and trust me to do that. And it was a scary thing going in with your friends, not knowing how you two work together yet, but it ended up being really special and really magical and actually just kind of strengthened our friendship even more, which we were very lucky because it doesn't always go that way. And then with Rahul, it was really funny because it was like October, we got the financing. We were going to shoot this in January. So we're in supersonic speed. COVID is going on and we're constantly adjusting day by day on how the hell we're going to shoot this thing. Derek and I, my producer and I drove out to New Mexico ourselves and found the main place to come carry that we were going to shoot for eight days. And then we made everything around that. We built everything around that. And while that was going on, I had seen Rahul. I had known Rahul from iZombie back in the day and just found him so charming. And then I was watching Bly Manor. I was just catching up on Mike's work and I was like, damn it, he delivered that monologue really good. (laughs) I was like, So I became, I was like, all I could see, especially because Katie, who is very strong and very severe and very intense, I needed somebody who could kind of be the foil to that and and have his own kind of intensity, but in a totally different way. And I just saw that so naturally in Rahul, who has this effortless but intense quality at the same time. I, it was funny because we were supposed to be going out on auditions and I said, I want Rahul. And he's my first choice. And they were like, okay, but can you look at auditions? And I was like, not until he says no to me. And he was in the middle of shooting Midnight Mass. And I guess right when I was like haranguing him, it was like he was doing the finale (laughs) episode. So he was a little bit busy. So, but I went through, because Mike and I had worked together and he's a friend. So I said, Mike, will you give this to Roth? Or I said, Mike, do you think he would do this? That's one of the first calls I made. And he goes, I think he would be great in this. He knew the script from back in the day. And he goes, I would love this. So he sent it to Rahul. Then I went to Rose McIver, who is obviously a champion. I said, will you send this to Rahul? I think he would be perfect. And then I went to his agent and I talked to Carolyn, <laughs> who I'd known through Rose. And I was like, and she's like, this would be perfect. So everybody was saying that, but he was working. He was shooting an incredibly intense emotional experience. And then all of a sudden, finally, I, he rapped. And the next day I got on a Zoom with him. And he was like, you really want to do this Zoom? And I was like, 
I did. And he's like, I'm in. I mean, he can speak a little bit more to the reasons of why he was in, but I do think he emotionally connected to the character. He understood the character. He understood the details of the character that I thought I would have to explain or get into. He immediately, intrinsically went there and was so honest and so sweet. And one of the most intelligent conversations that I've ever had and emotionally open conversations. And what was funny is that I had never gone on his Instagram or Twitter. <laughs> so he told me, he's like, have, have, you don't follow me. And I was like, no. And he's like, so you're going to see a slightly different side of me. And I was like, oh, <laughs> what could he possibly be talking about? And then I was like, oh, okay. <laughs> and then I got to see, because it's working with Rahul. He's, he is so smart. He is so kind. He is so respectful he can just go from one thing to another immediately. His process is just, it feels effortless. I know he's putting a lot of effort into it. I know there's a lot of work that he does, I, but it does feel that way when you're around him. Hmm. And so I was just so grateful that he said yes, because honestly, we didn't have time to go out to anybody else. And we left like three weeks later, I think after he said yes, barely got time to do fittings. And we only did one. I didn't do any chemistry test because I just, I knew they were right for each other. I did get them on one Zoom just to talk about shooting together. And immediately, Katie has one style, Rahul has another. They are completely different. And I was like, this is going to be perfect. Because the thing is, is that those differences, what I, we were going to drive across the country and shoot the film in order. And I didn't want them to talk to one another or get too close with one another. So you put them in the car and there's, at the beginning, they're a little bit more awkward with one another. And you see them naturally kind of get to know one another more through the shooting of this film. And, you know, my favorite thing to do is give them completely opposite directions and then watch them go. And it was so much fun. And the reason why it worked is they're both so respectful of the other person's process. They're not the same at all, but they really respected and listened to what the other person needed. And I think that's where you get that magical chemistry. Well, I love that we're both part of the fan club. I mean, I, I think you're president, but I'm, I'm a member. <laughs> And I, Katie Parker, I think is, I mean, I, I've, I'm a big fan of Mike Flanagan, so I've been watching her for a while, of course, and, and she's just a tremendous actress. She is. Speaking of that, though, speaking of like going after the actors you want, and then you're making a horror film, but it's not a traditional horror film, and you have to finance it, and you have to think, and you're a producer, and you're thinking, you're, you're spinning all these plates at the same time. I think a lot of indie filmmakers, I know I've been in the situation where you have the dream cast, but then you have someone saying, well, they're not Florence Pugh. They're not going to finance this in Hong Kong or whatever. Did you have those conversations or were you able to uh, to court equity, you know, private equity in a different way? I mean, that's the beauty of Helm Street. I mean, I've, I've done that so many times before. I've played that game. I still play that game. I'm currently trying to play that game on another film. That I'm trying to get made next. The beauty of Helm Street is that they they wanted something. This is their first film. Mm. This is Helm Street's first film, and they really wanted to make a debut film that was something that they could stand behind and believe in. Their whole thing is supporting voices that haven't been heard and underrepresented voices and stories that aren't being told. They're not here because of pre-sales. They're not here because of anything else. They just wanted to make a film that they could believe in. It makes them not traditional investors and they are green in some ways, but it also makes them kind of the best partners because they, they truly believed in the content and they believed in my choices and supported me the whole way through. And so the ease of making this film 
because of the investors believing in the creative, which never happens. And my God, why? But I see all these, all these directors struggle. And normally your job as a producer is to protect your director as much as possible from all of these outside things. But the fact of the matter is I didn't have that. And in fact, both of my investors, Lindsay and Joel, really wanted to come on board. They really wanted to see how a film was actually made. And so Joel was our second AC. Lindsay, I feel so bad that I did this to her. She was a script supervisor. <laughs> Wait, I thought you said you didn't need one. Is that, well, then you kind of... kind of gave up after a few days. Lindsay was like, what are you, what did you make me do? And I was like, you're going to really get to know the script inside and out. Let me tell you. Um, Which is just a very kind of mean role to do. But she did a very good job and she she tried to keep it together. The, The beauty was we were shooting in an order. So we were just going through the country. So most of it was continuity things of which hand did they pick something up on, which she was very good at and very fun at like watching and taking screenshots. So our, yeah, that was what our investors in. We had a two person camera team. So Joel ended up just jumping into camera, but he also jumped into G&E. I think they were painting walls at some points. Like they were just dream investors and honestly have become very good friends since then. So I, you know, hopefully working with them for the rest of my life, if I can. Oh, I mean, I have like 45 questions about how you got to work with them, but I almost feel like we're, we're, Maybe I'll ask one. You did spend so many years trying to find partners and then you found this dream partnership. And I know that you were prepared. Like, I understand that. But was it a mutual friend that introduced you? Was it what was it? I mean, this is just the thing is when you're in this game long enough, I I don't know how many investor meetings I've had, how many different investors, be it private investors, equity investors, pre—it's so many different types of investors. I mean, I just talk to people all the time. And so the reason why I think maybe it worked a little bit more than it would have 10 years ago is because I have kind of decided the type of filmmaker I am, the type of film that I want to make. I've started to, I have a track record of it at this point. You can see what I want to do and why. And so it becomes a little bit easier. And also it becomes easier when you're not just like, I want to make a film. But when you say, I want to make this film in this way, are you with me? And if you say no, my answer is I don't want to make it. You know, that's been where, you know, time and being able to do things for a while. I have walked away from more money and more deals in the past few years, which has always led to a better deal on the other side that has always allowed for more freedom and for the creative process to be stronger. So as scary as it is, because all we want to do is make these films and it takes so long to make them. I have another story film that we literally just shot that was six years in the making and we walked away from another deal in order to get there. It is the right move. I have never regretted that when I've done that because making a film the wrong way with the wrong partners, when you start off on the wrong foot, it won't get better. It doesn't get better and you're going to fight people the entire way through. And I'm sure one day I'll be working with distributors from earlier on and and maybe it'll be more challenging. But honestly, the distributors that I'm working with nowadays understand the power of creative and the power of leaning into their directors who actually understand it. So I'm hoping that that continues. I don't know. We'll see. (laughs) We'll see when it comes next. Well, I'm not worried. I wanted to talk a little bit about that creative process. You know, you wrote these character breakdowns. You knew these characters backwards and forwards. And I understand that Katie and Rahul had different processes. How much do you share with them and how much do you let them explore and figure out on their own? In terms of the backstories of the characters? Yeah, backstory and also like your reason for making the film. Like how much context are you providing them on things that don't have to do with the with the script? Yeah. You know, what was funny is I... I don't really talk about a lot of my personal life because Mm. it's it's hard for me to. 
I talk about it by writing this stuff. Yeah. And so it's pretty uh, like I always say I, I have so much trouble dealing with the like personal loss in my life and death. This is me trying to figure it out. So when people ask me questions sometimes in interviews, it's very hard for me to answer. It's like literally I, I have so much trouble talking about it. I have to write a movie, convince my <laughs> friends to be in it, find a mil- like close to a million dollars in order to make it just because I can't talk about my emotions. <laughs> like, do you understand how hard it is? So when people are like, why'd you do it? I'm like, I don't know, man. Just try to figure it out somehow. So I think that's 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 a little bit. So for Katie, Katie wanted to know why very in-depth for everything. And I actually, at a certain point, I, we did go through the script, but I did have to say at a certain point, certain things actually don't matter. And what does matter is this: what your character is after and why. Like Katie really wanted to understand all the rules of the ghost world. And I said, that's actually not your role on this. What your role is, is that you don't want to be in this life anymore focus and then we focused on that side of it and then it then rose all of a sudden it was so funny we had one conversation one day where she was trying to figure that out and I said you'd have to ask her what I said and I said but it is all your fault or something like that and she goes we have to talk again tomorrow she just got off the zoom with me and she came back and she's like all right we're good and just like understood the character in a whole new way I don't remember exactly what the wording was and with Rahul it was we both got on the same page with Teddy's backstory we were very clear about everything that happened before day one of shooting this movie was more what he wanted to do. And then once once we once we were on the same page there, we really just got to fly on the day because then he got to be a little bit more free and find it. And I think after coming off of so many TV shows where things are so specific, you're shooting out of order. I know with Midnight Mass, they had to shoot that all like with locations. So they're shooting it entirely out of order. So for him to be able to just go on a tr- like emotional journey and allowed stuff to come up, I think was one of the reasons why he liked the role and the opportunity. Again, probably for Rahul to say, but so again, very different with how I want worked with both of them. And I found with Katie, it was a lot more tiny detailed notes. And for Rahul, it was always more big notes, like uh, with Teddy. And uh, I don't know, it just, it kind of worked. <laughs> Emily Higgins was on the show and she's actually my mentor. I like appointed her my horror comedy mentor. Love that. And she came on the show to talk about Scare Package and lots of other things. And I, I, it inspired me to ask you, you know, how do you know whether you want to come on a project to produce or whether, I mean, I know this was the first feature directing, but you said you just shot something too. So there's a decision process there of directing versus producing versus this is not for you. So how do you know it's producing? How do you know it's directing? What what pushes you in one direction or another? Well, I've been a producer for a while. So that's kind of my skill set. That's the stronger muscle. I'm trying not to produce as much as possible. Now, the only things that I'm producing are for projects that I was already previously attached to, or directors that I, I believe have something important to say that I really want to support. So there's not too many directors at this point. I also have worked with so many first-time directors. And so I got very experienced with that, which I was able to luckily correlate over into my my own experience. For me, it has to excite me. It has to be emotionally driven and it has to be something unique. You read so much of the same material. I'm always just looking for something that I haven't seen before. I haven't heard before. It doesn't have to be, it can be a traditional story, but what is it about it that sets it apart? And it's normally, especially with the script, it's actually more about the director and it's more about what the director wants to say with that project. Cause I think that that's imperative. So for the most part, I'm trying to stick with directing <laughs> But as we all know, indie film directing is not the most reliable career. So, uh, you know, I'll definitely, as I, I just did, I just finished producing uh, birth, Laura Moss's Birth Rebirth. Oh, I know 
her. That's okay. That's her first feature. This is a big deal for her. I remember. Yeah. And in, in the plans for a very long time. For very long time. Yep. Wow. Yeah. Congratulations yeah, for getting it made. Still in the can. Yeah, we're still in post. So we still got to survive that. <laughs> well, going back to sustainability, then, is that how you led a sustainable lifestyle? Was it through producing or is there... I mean, I know there are other forces at play here, but I'm just curious if if producing is what what your day job was. I mean, it's hard because I'm always I, I have like ten jobs at once at all times. I mean, that's kind of the indie filmmaker, right? Yeah. Producing is definitely something that I've now done enough of that I can get work when when I need to get work. I can hop on something. I can work for something. I actually started out as a writer. I was a journalist for six years for Screen Crave. I did all the film festivals. I loved it. I did all the film festivals. I went around and I got to talk to people all the time. And I wrote reviews and I did all of that. So I was doing that while I was making my first film. Because again, indie filmmaking, not exactly the most lucrative. Yeah. And then I, you know, honestly, I've done so many, I, I used to be a professional horseback rider. And so I'd also go teach horseback riding lessons on the weekends. I, I, I've worked so many odd jobs. I've come in on commercials and I've line produced and UPM'd those. I, you know, there's so many things that aren't on your resume that you don't really want people to know that you do that I, I do all the time. <laughs> All right. We ask everyone the same ending questions and they're kind of like our inside the actor studio. Like they're kind of hippy dippy. So get ready for some hippy dippy stuff. Ready for hippy dippy. Look, I'm from Topanga Canyon, man. (laughs) You're already there. You, yeah, you were. What's the first film you ever made and how do you feel about it now? Oh, Do Not Disturb was my first feature. You know, oh God, it's funny because somebody came up to me and you were talking about budgets and small indie budget films. And somebody came up to me about making, you know, $30,000 films. That budget was $30,000. I I wanted to make my first film. I uh, did an Indiegogo. I, you know, I made it happen, shot it in seven days. It was one of those. It was an anthology film before everybody did anthology films. <laughs> I had originally written it for me to star in. And then immediately was like, what am I doing? And recast myself with Diva Zappa, who has appeared in almost every single one of my features. So, you know, it's not a great film, but I love it. I I love it because I didn't do everything right. I didn't know what I was doing and I just went for it. And I do feel like at a certain point, and you end up paying for so much out of pocket. I'm pretty sure I paid for most of that film, especially in post. You don't know about things like delivery. You're like, oh, it does, like, yeah, we made the film for 30K, but you now have to deliver it. And if you don't have all of these types of things and be able to afford it, that was a whole learning learning curve. But I didn't do it the way of like going to film school or anything else. I kind of had to learn it the hard way. And it was a great experience. And it's not something that I would ever redo. And I never want to make a $30,000 film ever again, nor did I ever really, whenever people also, I get kind of frustrated when people brag about that type of stuff because 30 K means people didn't get their proper rates. You didn't give them enough time to shoot. It's not saying, look at how little we did. It's let's look at how much we made people suffer. (laughs) And I, so it is hard for me now because as much as with next exit, we shot it for a low budget. We also didn't abuse people. I don't go into OT. I'm very firm about that. We made sure to, you know, cut in ways of days, cut in ways of time, cut in ways of equipment, cut in ways of not too many crew and not try to cut into people's lives or salaries because this is how they survive. I think that's really important to, to not always brag about how small people's budgets are because I feel like that creates an environment where everybody just keeps trying to fight down 
And I think it's important for all of us, especially as artists, to be given the chance to succeed and live lives. And it's very rare. And I, I don't like that. So I've lost my way on this question. Where did we begin? Well, I actually, you answered both parts. What is the first film and how do you feel about it now? But I liked the cherry on top you gave about exploitation and of labor in film. That's very nice. Yeah. yeah. Oh, I love it. Also, by the way, I went back. What an amazing cast. We had Eric Balfour, Lindsay Bolsifer, Jonathan Majors, just like all these amazing cast people. Diva Zappa was in that one. And I just, it was wild. It was a great, it was a great fun time and I'll never do it again. (laughs) What's the best filmmaking advice you've ever received? Be bold only. And it was Danny Boyle who said it to me. And I, at first I was like, I didn't understand what that meant. And he said, be bold only. That's all, that's all you have to remember is to just continue to be bold. And I thought that that was some really beautiful advice and it's so simple and so little. And yet it was actually incredibly important to me. Although I will say a lot of the advice that has actually shaped me has been advice that I knew was wrong. Hmm. Well, that's the, that's the next advice. That's the next question. So please okay. tell me what's okay. the bad advice you've been given? I mean, so much. One of the things was somebody told me to not take all of this emotionally or personally. And the fact is, is I am emotional. This is entirely personal for me. And I think that person was trying to make sure that I would never get hurt. But the fact of the matter is you're an artist, you are. And I do get hurt. And when you, I read all the reviews and I get some bad ones and that hurts. And the fact of the matter is that's okay because that's all, that's just how we grow. That's how we learn. And I think the most important thing is not being afraid of being hurt, of not being afraid of being open and also finding your way into that. I'm, I'm really sick of people telling me like, you should be like, if somebody told me, cause when I intro my film, I always give like a little kind of quiet intro. And somebody said, you got to be more confident. You got to go out there and like tell them you made a great film. And I was like, Oh, that sounds horrible to me. I would never want to do that. It's um, that boss bitch thing that people are trying to get women to do. Sorry, yeah. not to. No, it is. And it's like, you need to own your space. And I was like, I do. And you know how I own it? I can be vulnerable. I can listen. And I can yeah. also keep my intention of exactly what I'm trying to do. And I think that it's important for people who don't feel like a, <laughs> a boss bitch or who don't feel like they have total control of everything and who don't feel that way, that your voice is just as important, if not maybe more, because you're willing to go to places those people aren't. I am on your page for sure. Do you have a goal as a filmmaker? Is there something you're trying to do or is there like a landmark you'd like to receive somehow? I just want to keep going. All I want to do is keep, I love filmmaking. Nothing makes me happier than being on set and like the magical tornado of when you get everything going in the right direction, it's all kind of chaotic, but it's all happening. That is my happiest place on earth. So I just want the opportunity to be able to keep going and to be able to keep evolving and changing and trying to make stories that people haven't heard or in ways that they haven't seen before. And to be honest about myself when I fail at doing that and then keep going. Uh, If you could go back in time, what's the piece of advice you'd give yourself? I wouldn't listen. So it's kind of pointless. (laughs) I, I was such a stubborn little brat when I was younger and starting. And I, I think I needed that. Whenever I see people who are kind of like that nowadays, I'm just like, good on you. And they ask me for advice. And I'm like, you don't need my advice. You just need to keep going. Like, you need to just work through all of that. Because that was what I had to do. You know, everybody wants to tell you how you should do something. Everybody wants to tell you their experiences. And sometimes that is helpful. And you take it all in. And look, I used to, I visit so many of my friends' film sets. Like, whenever they invite me or if they're shooting, I always go and I love taking it in and I love being like 
I want that. I don't want that. I love that. I don't love that. So it's not saying don't learn and don't listen, but it is saying at a certain point, you do have to figure it out for yourself. Last question. Is making movies hard? By the way, that's the name of our podcast. Is making movies hard? Next. Easy peasy. <laughs> you know, it's the truth of the matter is I, I always say that this is like the dirty secret. Look, the hours are hard. It's a hard experience. You're putting yourself out there. But the actual, if you love filmmaking and if this is, this is my happy place, it's not hard. It's a lot of work. It's a lot of commitment. I put a lot into it, but I don't think it's actually hard because it is the dream. It is what I love doing. It is the happiest place in the world for me to be on set working with actors and moving the camera and problem solving. So it's a lot and there's a lot of challenges and there's a lot of problems that you have to find clever solutions to. But I I don't know that it is actually hard. I might have to disagree with your podcast there. (laughs) <laughs> that is okay. It's a wonderful answer. Do you, I mean, we'll be encouraging people to see the film, but do you have a call to action for our audience and is follow you on Twitter, give to UNICEF, whatever it is, share it right now if you want. Oh, man. I mean, I would love for people to go, go and see this film. And I hope that it inspires you to look at things from a different perspective, but also go and look outside at the damn stars, go look at the mountains and go talk to a stranger. And when you get stuck in your own way, look at what else there is around you. Because there's so much I've always found that when I'm having issues, being there for other people is the most important thing. And there's a lot of people who need help right now. So go help those people. Do you love making movies as hard and you want to listen to more episodes? Jump over to our Patreon page at patreon.com slash MMIH and you can listen to the entire back catalog of episodes for just $1.99 a month. That's an additional 300 episodes that aren't on iTunes that you can listen to whenever you please. But without any more blibber blabber, back to the show. Liz, what is the one thing that I should know about your chat with Molly that if I did not listen to the show, which I have not listened to it yet? That I thought it was going to be a dual interview with my favorite actor, Rahul Kohli. And Molly Elfman. (laughs) And so all of my questions were me trying to figure out how to ask both of them the same question and have a lively show and make it interesting. And then Rahul couldn't make it, which honestly was such a relief because then I could concentrate on Molly Elfman, who was one of my favorite interviews we've done. She's so cool. And I was really nervous about talking to Rahul. And I think I would have fucked up the interview like and would have been a little bit distracted and confused and, and yucky so it turned out for the best what you what the one thing you should know is that it turned out for the best and that she is like she comes from our world man she comes from the micro budget world she's a hustler she's a prolific producer and i didn't ask her about her family connections you know she's danny elfman's daughter it didn't it didn't seem germane but i wanted to acknowledge that she didn't seem like the type of person who rested on her laurels she really right. seemed like she worked her ass off to be where she is right now. That's awesome. Yeah, I mean, because just because your your parents are someone famous, it doesn't mean that it's easy for you or that you don't have to work as hard, you know, because, yeah, you're only going to get so many chances if you suck. So <laughs> that's awesome to hear. But I think it's time for the, the game. game. That was, <laughs> hopefully it's that fun. delay didn't fuck us over. That, it sounded right to me. It sounded like we were yeah, together. Yeah, it seemed good. 
So the game is a game that we play every single episode and it was put together and, and originated by podcast producer Eric Toms. The idea is one of us will dispense a blind question, a question that the other had never seen or been acquainted with, an indie film quagmire, a problem on an indie film set that you need to solve. And I'm going to put you on the spot, Ulrich, and ask you this indie film quagmire right now. Ooh. It's a long one. Get ready. <laughs> Take All notes right, if you I'm want ready. to. Okay. okay. You're looking for financing for your latest horror feature film. You're connected with a producer who not only loves the script and your past work, but also has a ton of experience. This producer has consistently made money on their projects and has connections with a long list of financiers. The two of you meet for lunch, and although you get along creatively, you can tell this person's life is in chaos. If you end up agreeing to work with this person, you know that you'll be intertwined with their life for multiple years, and although your project will get made, this person's problems will spill into your life as well. To make things worse, you've paid for the screenwriter's option out of your own pocket, and time is running out before you have to re-up the contract, costing you money. Do you A, agree to work with the producer knowing that part of your job will be dealing with the stability of the producer's life. B, walk away from the project, possibly losing the script as well. C, see if there's some way you can hire this producer in some sort of diminished capacity, knowing you won't get the film's full financing. D, other. What do you do, director? What do you do? I don't know if uh, what I see in the value of C, because like if you're bringing them on in a diminished position, they're not going to bring the funding to your movie. Right. You know? Right. So that's not really a solve, you know, although that does sound like an ideal situation. But, you know, with people like that, like big or small, they're going to be a part of your life and the production and, and the film, you know, whatever. Like from the... You know, the one investor all the way to like, yeah, your producer. It's like you, you've got to deal with the people and their personalities. Like that's just a part of it, you know? And you know, they always say like, if you have like one toxic person, then, you know, like you should just cut that person out no matter what, because like the toxicity is like, you know, infectious and will like go into every part of making the movie. But <laughs> being a very like, pragmatic person and like you know if I'd paid my own money to get this movie optioned and then somehow I guess I'm not sure if the question is saying that like they now hold like the movie's life in their in their hands which I guess is what it's, it's trying to make it sound like that like if I don't work with this person like I won't be able to make this movie you know basically like time's mm -hmm. running out like I have to to do this it's like basically not make the movie and lose the money or make the movie and if that's if I'm reading that correctly then I think and and they're in there you said they're a prolific producer with finance fi, fi, like connections to financiers and like mm -hmm. a really great track record and like a good reputation is, is that part yeah, of but it there's too? no guarantee right like it just because they have a long list of financiers and a it doesn't mean it's a binary of you work with them you get the movie made you don't work with them you don't get the movie made right is that is that what it is a binary of that no it's not a binary is what oh, it's saying. not a binary. Yeah. Oh, okay yeah 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 but i mean basically like it, it's basically if jason blum you know was like i'll produce your movie basically and but then like but i'm going through the, the worst divorce of my life right now and i have to tell you about it every day it's like you know not not to put you know anything on jason blum's personal life or anything but i'm just saying in 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 theoretically yeah i think you gotta go with it man 
I think you got to go with it and make it work. Cause like I deal with crazy people, you know, not crazy people, but I deal with people. <laughs> the ones who listen emotions. to the show, Ulrich. <laughs> we all deal with people who are emotional, sensitive people in this business. I'm an emotional, sensitive person. Everybody I work with is an emotional, sensitive person to some degree. Some are, you know, more in control and some are less in control, you know, and some people need to be involved with every single detail. And if you get, they get left out of something, they get hurt. Or if someone calls you and you don't call them back fast enough, they get upset. You know, there's all kinds of different personalities and things you deal with when you're trying to make a movie or anything in life, really. And so to me, it's like, it's just another challenge, another part of that experience, you know? And I think in this case, it sounds like the upside outweighs the downside because you get to work with a really prolific, famous producer. Having your name associated to a person like that is very good for a director, especially if the movie gets made. But even if the movie doesn't get made and there's press releases and your name's associated, I think that also could help to some degree. And I think like, you know, no one really begrudges you if a movie falls apart because that happens all the time. But like, it could be a a step forward in your career one way or another. And then also like, if you already spent your own money and like this person is like, I can get this movie made, I can get a return on your investment. It's like, well, you know, how often does that happen? Like very, very little. So I feel like if they're going to be able to bring the money together and they actually make this movie and they're going through a tough time. It's like, well, I'm their new friend. I'm going to help them through this tough time. I'm going to be their shoulder to cry on. I'm going to be there to support them. And we're going to make this movie. It's going to be a fucking amazing experience. We're all going to have a great time. It's going to bring that person out of their slump and we're going to have so much fun making it. And then when the movie's done, it's going to fucking blow minds, baby. So that's my mindset is like, I can look at all those negatives and I can, I can just see like the positive trajectory that we can like, boom, push ourselves out of it, you know? So that's what I say. That's what I would do. Liz, what would you do with the situation? Do you yeah. run for the hills? No, this felt very cut and this felt very cut and dry. Like, yeah, you just go forward and you deal with the crazy producer. This didn't seem like a confusing question at all. I think as long as this person isn't mean to me, I'm willing to deal with a lot. Like Or, or others, right? Like, yeah, like yeah, yeah, shithead to like the crew or whatever. Yeah. As long as they are, I <laughs> look, I have a lot of friends who are emotional roller coasters like you know it's just like kind of you're alluding to too and it's like i've been at the front row of some amazingly dramatic things <laughs> you know that's also what as filmmakers we're like really interested in dramatic stories and we're attracted to kind of those narratives sometimes but this is all to say this does not scare me this seems very normal for the entertainment industry and as long as this person doesn't make me feel bad about myself or make others feel bad about themselves I don't care about a little drama. I love how you're like... Nice. I love how... I love your ambition uh, about making their life better. I'm not in any way thinking that way. I'm like, their life is going to be horrible no matter what. But but it's just about whether I can withstand <laughs> it. And I, and I feel like I can. Well, I think that sometimes, like, with the right project and the right positive energy, like, it, it can be a plus rather than a yeah. minus. And I feel like oftentimes when people are going through traumatic or really tough parts of their lives, working can be a way to help with those things. I mean, and I'm not saying it always is the answer and it's always the right thing to do, but I think a lot of time it, it can be that. So, yeah, I don't know. I guess I'm also just always trying to look at the, at the, you know, the rainbow, you know, that no one sees or like the, 
the positive possibilities in the situation that, you know, might not be evident, right? Like, because it could be there, you know? And I think we've all been in situations where someone is going through a hard time or whatever, and then they bounce back, you know? So that could definitely happen too. So I wouldn't, I would just see that and run, you know? It's like, yeah, like there's got to be, we can make this work. All right. So we have a really exciting question from a listener, Keith Holcomb. Keith writes, Liz and Ulrich, I want to be a filmmaker and I discovered your podcast about a year ago. I feel like every episode has helped me to understand a little bit more about the world I want to step into. Also, you guys are super fun to listen to. Okay. Onto my question. Well, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. As someone who is currently in a completely different career and in my 30s, is there any advice that you can give me to get started as a filmmaker? Honestly, I'm ready to quit my job and relocate to LA or or New York City. I know starting over a new career will be hard, especially a career in film, but I am driven and ready to do whatever it takes. What advice would you give to someone like me? And if you have an episode from one of the previous seasons that talks about getting started as a filmmaker, let me know and I will listen. Thanks. Liz, what do you think? I know that there are some unanswered questions that you have about this, and I think I probably have similar questions. This person wants to be a filmmaker. What type of filmmaker do they want to be? Do they want to be an indie filmmaker, a low-budget filmmaker, a director, a writer, producer? I'm going to assume this is a director who wants to make features, just because that seems to be the most popular answer to this question, but maybe... You know, maybe Keith will correct us. And if you are a director who wants to make features, I would actually not encourage you to move to L.A. or New York in your 30s. I would test your hypothesis and make your feature wherever you are and really check the instinct and passion that you have against uh, real hard work, putting a production together in a silo, because you're going to need that kind of gumption when you're in LA and New York. And for you to upend your life just seems like a really dangerous thing when you haven't fully tested your metal, right? Tested the metal of your passion, tested the metal of your will, your your conviction. I've had a lot of people reach out to me over the past few years who say, Liz, I want to make this movie. Will you consult with me? And then I start consulting with them and I start talking with them about the really long pathway to making the feature and almost, and maybe they don't want to work with me. There's many reasons why they disappear, but I feel like 75% of the reason they disappear is because they're not attracted to the path that I've laid out that it takes to be a feature filmmaker. What about you? Right. No, I think that's common. You know, when people realize how hard it is or they see what it really means to make a movie and it's not like this glamorous, fun, like thing all the time. Then uh, they they realize, oh, maybe I'll do something else. Maybe I'll paint. Maybe I'll um, get into rowing. You know, something different. But yeah, I think I, I have the same questions as you. Like, what what do you want to do in the business? Because I think depending on what you want to do, it's very different answers, right? Let's let's take the writer. Let's like if they wanted to be a writer, Felicia Pride is an amazing example of this because I believe she was in her thirties or at least late twenties when mm-hmm. she moved to Los Angeles. You know, she basically lays out exactly what you have to do to to get to to get into a writer's room and it's it was a beautiful story it was really amazing it showed so much hustle of what of what she did to get to that place like just writing and submitting a contest writing submitting a contest meeting people moving to los angeles putting yourself out there like getting involved in the community taking these courses like you know applying to these initiatives it's like all this stuff which you can do 
And I think that would like that would make sense to move to Los Angeles if you wanted to be a writer, especially if you wanted to be in a writer's room, because like that's sort of like kind of where all those connections are made and you can, you know, write from anywhere. So if you haven't written anything yet, maybe start writing and then start submitting, which is also something that people do. Right. It's like feature writer versus TV writer, right? Like you're if it's a TV writer, yes, you want to be in L.A. or New York. If it's feature writer, you could make it anywhere else. You could figure out a way to, to pave a path somewhere else. Yeah. And you could get started where yes. you are first before, you know, making the move. So if like, if you want to be a writer, you can start writing pilots. You can start writing. Maybe not. I, f- I feel like I learned in Austin that you don't want to be wanting, you don't want to write spec scripts anymore. You want to be writing original content these days. Very rare when you write a spec. It's very like certain programs ask for those kinds of specs. But like, I think in, in actual practice, no one wants to read your breaking bad script. But yeah, so that's what I would, I would do. Or, I mean, you could, if you wanted to be an agent or a manager or you wanted to do whatever, you could like, you, you could, I think in your thirties, you, these days, I think you can start as assistant if you want to. Like you can go oh, to the yeah, bottom and work your way up. Like that, I think that is totally an open option. I feel like people would always say, oh, that's a twenties thing. You should do it in your twenties. But I think thirties, forties, whatever. Like you want to start at the bottom? Here's here's the path. Take it, you know. But I think there is like a, another path into writers' rooms too, like through the assistant route, you know, working that that angle. So I think you could do that as well if you move to Los Angeles. But yeah, I think if you want to be a feature filmmaker, make your movie for sure. Like that's like the that's like that barrier to entry. That's what you have your movie made, then move to Los Angeles, you know. But there's nothing stopping you from moving to LA if you want to, or New York, yeah. and and just doing it. But I think you're gonna be probably paying higher rent, like working a day job anyways for a while. So maybe give yourself some more ammunition before you make the move, potentially. I'm wary of that aspect of the question, right? It makes me feel like, because, you know, Ariki and I are in our late 30s. Sorry to broadcast it to the world, but that's where we are. And you hit certain perspective in your late 30s where you reevaluate things in a different light. And I'm just saying, like, the desire to escape your current situation could drive you to a dramatic decision of like LA versus New York, right? So that feels like mm-hmm. a romantic instinct rather than a practical instinct of how do I actually get to this pathway? So that's, I'm, I'm just wary of right. the willingness to move because it feels like, because that seem, that's like the easiest <laughs> part of the whole thing is making the actual physical move. And that's very, very hard. Wow. I'm not saying that's not easy. I mean, I'm not saying that's not hard. That's really, really hard, but it's <laughs> right, actually right. the easiest thing because it's all right, right. logistics. And then everything else is chaos and questions yeah. uh, and like moving mountains. That's a good point. Well, Keith, write us back. Tell us what you're trying to do, where you're at in your career. Have you made movies? Have you not made movies? Um, have you written anything? Have you not written anything? Are we totally wrong? Do you want to be a sound person? Do you want to be a producer? You could, there's lots of other things that you could want to be. And there, depending on what it is, like there's a lot of other avenues you could go to, to starting that journey without having to move first. You know, I feel like the one that requires moving the most is, getting in a writer's room but i mean if you haven't written anything yet obviously that's where it starts <laughs> get a write, you know so and that you can do you know wherever you are so i hope that's helpful we're excited to hear what you think thanks for listening and yeah love the question <laughs>
And to all those still with us, you get to hear me and my son in the background give us a, a little sign off. You can send us a question, comment, or suggestion to <laughs> podcast at makingmoviesishard.com. If you like the show, you can leave us a review on iTunes. You could check us out on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter at MMIH Podcast, and YouTube at Making Movies is Hard Podcast. Of course, he quiets down as soon as I call out the fact that he makes lots of noise. Check out the International mm-hmm. Screenwriters mm-hmm. Association, which is an organization designed to connect writers with filmmakers through a number of the programs they offer, including consultation courses, contests, top 25 writers list. Head on over to www.networkisa.org to sign up for free today. Special thank you to Molly Elfman, Camelia DB for coming on the show and setting up the interview in the first place. Thank you, Camelia. Thanks for editor Jeff Rymood for doing the editing. Our producer Eric Toms for being awesome. To my son for making all this noise. Uh, to Auric for being amused by it. Thanks to all of you for listening and talk to y'all next week. This is the challenge of doing press days from uh, from home is that you get <laughs> this. <laughs> this is Kale. Hi. Yeah, an appearance in another video. Kale will make an appearance in this one. I don't know if you can see. My, I have a dog named Laura Palmer and she's there. Uh, Laura Palmer. Me, so. <laughs> We're, we're big, big fans over here. You know, when you're listening to a true crime story that has an unbelievable plot twist that makes you stop in your tracks. That's what our podcast. People are the worst brings you with each episode. I'm Rachel and I'm Rebecca. We're identical twins who love true crime cases that make you say, didn't see that coming. And we hate the people responsible for them. Listen to people are the worst now on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.